Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. As always, references to online resources mentioned in the episode will be available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. It's somewhat annoying, but it's a fact of the podcasting ecosystem that getting a lot of good reviews and a lot of good ratings increases our visibility on the app, which helps us build our audience, which lets us continue to attract the great guests that we have on the show. So please, when you're done listening today, give us a five-star rating, and if you have the time, a review on your favorite podcast app. Thanks! Today's guest is Zach Stein, a writer, an educator, and a futurist working to bring a greater sense of sanity and justice to education. He's been on the show before. In fact, we had him here three times in pretty short order, episodes 57, 60, and 62. We worked through his very interesting book, Education in a Time Between Worlds, in some considerable depth over all three episodes. So what you hear is interesting to you. You want to know more about Zach's thinking more generally about education, go check out those three podcasts, 57, 60, and 62. Welcome, Zach. Good to have you back. It's good to be here, Jim. Yeah, we've had such wonderful conversations and got such good feedback on them. Figured, hey, let's have him back again on something I'm interested in. A little bit of background on Zach. He studied philosophy and religion at Hampshire College and then educational neuroscience, human development, and the philosophy of education at Harvard. He's the co-founder of Lectica, a company we'll talk about a little bit, a nonprofit dedicated to the research-based, justice-oriented reform of large-scale standardized testing in K-12, higher education, and business. So today we're going to talk about an interesting, somewhat narrow topic that Zach knows a fair amount about, and that's a concept called hierarchical complexity. And before we jump in, one of the things I dug up in my research is that people talk about hierarchical complexity, like to contrast it with non-hierarchical or so-called horizontal complexity. That might be a good place to start to draw a picture of what we mean when we talk about hierarchical complexity. Could you tell us you know, the difference between vertical hierarchical complexity versus horizontal complexity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a, well, let me say a few things first, actually, because there's a historical story about the emergence of the construct of hierarchical complexity in the field of psychology, which helps to actually orient people even to this issue of horizontal versus uh, vertical complexity. And uh, yeah, it's worth saying, like, as you mentioned, I, this was the focus of my graduate school uh, and my scientific training as a developmental psychologist. And so I worked with Theo Dawson, who uh, Lectica's her brainchild. Um, and she specifically did psychometric innovation around this construct of hierarchical complexity. And I worked with Kurt Fisher, who one of the foremost neo-Piagetians uh, also did important empirical work to uh, validate the construct of hierarchical complexity. They were both colleagues with Michael Commons, who actually kind of coined the term model of hierarchical complexity. Um, and so I was kind of stationed there studying with them, but the notion of hierarchical complexity is actually the emergence of one of the longest continuous research projects uh, in the field of psychology. Um, 
you know, the construct uh, first emerged actually almost a hundred years ago with Piaget's, you could, if you wanted to date it, you could date it with Piaget's publication of the language and thought of the child in 1923. Um, before that, there were shades of it and people like James Mark Baldwin, and you can find it in like Herbert Spencer. And uh, you can even find it in the natural philosophies and philosophies of mind um, because it is a ubiquitous property of mental process. And we'll get to that. But the point I'm making here is that there emerged in the 80s and 90s uh, what I'll call uh, neo-Piagetian consensus on the formal definition of stages uh, across lifespan development, which is a long way of saying that this whole complex field of human development, which had hundreds of researchers in it since Piaget, if not more, uh, eventually distilled this core property that characterizes what the differences between a baby rolling around with its reflexes in the crib and a young child able to circumnavigate the room and an adolescent able to have an abstract conversation and an adult able to do theoretical physics, <laughs> right? Um, from cradle to Einstein, there's this fundamental difference and developmental difference. This is the field of developmental psychology. Um, and so the question of like, what's, there's so much that's contextual in development. There's so much that's social. There's so much that's culturally relative. There's so much that's uh, unique and particular to an individual. Are there universal things that you can use to characterize development across the lifespan, across culture, individual? And so hierarchical complexity is essentially what emerged from that set of questions. Many other things emerged too, but hierarchical complexity became the thing that could be distilled into a formal psychological measurement system. And this is what Theo Dawson really, I think, did the most pioneering work in, in the field of psychometrics, bringing it uh, together with this developmental construct of hierarchical complexity. And so horizontal complexity also has been researched by developmental psychologists. And it's a basic issue in learning to say, once you've figured out how to do something like, let's say, I don't know, tie your shoes, then you can tie any number of shoes. But if I put a thousand shoes in a room, it's going to be very hard for you to tie those shoes. There's more and more of the same task, more and more of the same kind of task at the same level of complexity. That's horizontal complexity. Vertical complexity or hierarchical complexity, it's when you're not just doing the same task, you're doing a fundamentally or qualitatively more complex task. And that's hard in a different way. So uh, making a shoe <laughs> is different than uh, tying the shoelaces on a shoe that's already made. And making a shoe is hierarchically much more complex than tying a shoe. Uh, so it's, it's more difficult. But you know, is making one shoe more difficult than tying a thousand shoes in ha half an hour? <laughs> so that's like, I don't know, you know? And so when you're faced with the question of like, why did a person not succeed at a task? Um, why did it overwhelm their capacity? You can answer it in either way. Um, and sometimes it's both, but sometimes it's one, uh, you know, did they fail the math test because they weren't able to do that type of problem? They, it was too complex for them or just that there were too many of those problems or that they were distracted by their phone and other demands on horizontal complexity. Or is it the case, as I mentioned, that it was too hierarchically complex, it demanded 
too much of an integration of lower order capacities that had already been mastered, right? Um, so, so that's some of the difference. So hierarchical complexity is unfolding over the course of a lifespan and unfolding minute to minute as you're learning. It's a ubiquitous process in the construction of skill and the creation of new skill out of prior existing skills. So before you can tie a shoe in the sensory motor domains, you need to be able to manipulate the individual laces and you need to be able to uh, understand some of the notions of like tension and other things you learn at a almost muscular level about uh, how to manipulate objects. And then you apply that mastery to a very specific higher order mastery <laughs> uh, in vertical complexity, which is to fold over the, the, the strings in a particular way to make the bows or whatever that, whatever the knot is. And so that's a basic example of that process of hierarchical integration where the many lower order skills become the single qualitatively new, more complex skill. And we can get into that. That's the most basic thing, the hierarchical integration, which makes emergent new levels or higher orders of hierarchical complexity in skill development. So yeah, so that's the, that's the basic notion. And, and um, once it was distilled uh, as, as, a, as a construct, um, then it became possible to operationalize in educational contexts and research contexts. And specifically um, in the work of Kurt Fisher's dynamic skill theory, you see what is a very abstract, almost mathematical construct as articulated by Michael Commons, put in the context of a richly dynamical, embodied and embrained person. And that's, I think, the important thing to get that the model of hierarchical complexity is like a thermometer or a ruler. It's not a rich descriptive psychology. It is a unidimensional invariant property of psychological life that's been distilled and is measurable. <laughs> but you have to put on that very abstract skeleton a whole bunch of psychological and even biological theorizing to have that construct make sense of human behavior in medias race, right, in the middle of things. And so that's what Kurt's dynamical skill theory does. So often when I speak about hierarchical complexity, I usually end up switching to speak about skill theory because then you can speak about how hierarchical complexity actually manifests in human skill and behavior. So yeah, so there's of course more to say there, but that's the fundamental way in, I think, is to see it as a, this emerging out of a particular Neo-Piagetian consensus and that it has a lot of explanatory capacity and a lot of empirical um, backing. So yeah, I'm curious where you'd like to take the conversation. Yeah, just a little example that I pulled out of something I read. Listeners know I usually spend eh, 10 hours researching a podcast, something like that, and go every which way looking for stuff. One example they gave that sort of falls between the two, perhaps, but they ruled it to be non-hierarchical, was something like taking an elevator from the lobby to the seventh floor, you know, because there's a series of discrete a sequence, as they called it, where, you know, you stand in front of the elevator and you press the button, you wait for the door to open, you walk in, you press another button, wait for it to go up, door opens, you walk out. And each of the tasks was at about the same level and they were disjoint and they didn't affect each other in any significant way. While a hierarchical task 
I imputed this one myself from that reading, might be, for instance, disassembling, making one small part replacement, and then reassembling a lawnmower engine, where every move depends on every other move and has a whole bunch of ancillary skills. Like if you don't lay the pieces out in the right order, you know, as you take them apart, there's no way you're going to remember how to put them back again. You need a mnemonic to map all that, et cetera. So does this idea of a sequence of essentially like skills, like going up in an elevator, is that fall on the non-hierarchical side while something like disassembling and reassembling a motor clearly falls on the hierarchical side? So all skills, any skill has a certain amount of hierarchical complexity in it. So like, for example, as I mentioned in the crib, uh, infants often uh, have trouble actually focusing in the foveal vision field, which is to say, focusing on the elevator button is a skill. Reaching out and pointing accurately and pushing it in is a sensory motor skill, which coordinates the reaching and pointing with the looking. So even in the act of going into the elevator, uh, you are making use of skills that were built up through the process of hierarchical complexity. And that task itself is a sensory motor system, right? It requires you to coordinate a bunch of sensory motor things with an orienting, uh, with an overarching coordination of those things, which is the, maybe it's a single representation even uh, of the getting up the elevator. <laughs> right, that holds in place, you know, maybe a dozen different specific sensory motor schemes, which couldn't be completed by a very young child, um, even if you explained it to them and tried to help them. But yes, of course, taking apart and putting back together again a lawnmower is a much more complex task than taking the elevator up. That's that's definitely true. And there you're moving up into the realms of abstraction where there needs to be a, you know, uh kind of a process held in mind to coordinate not just sensory motor uh, systems of the facility with your hands and the parts to actually get the thing together, and, but also a whole descriptive language of what the different parts do and um, a bunch of things that need to be held in mind um, and linguistically mediated usually, as you said, with diagrams and such uh, that make that whole task kind of much more obviously complex than, than getting on an elevator. Um, so yeah, that's a, it's a pretty good example, but it's not in the same uh, domain, really. The example I like to use is um, the emergence of representations out of sensory motor systems, where as a child in the sensory motor domain, you can master a tremendous amount of horizontal complexity. Children can get themselves dressed, and they can brush their teeth, and they can uh, put on pajamas and get into bed and prepare to be read a story. And so there's a sprawling array of sensory motor schemes, which eventually get integrated into a single representation, which is bedtime, right? And so Piaget marveled uh, at the emergence of what he called the semiotic function, which was the emergence of a representation to capture uh, a tremendous amount of like dense uh, lower order material, specifically sensory motor material. So bedtime emerges and comes to represent it kind of gets unpacked as uh, all of that sense that's what it means it means getting ready all the preparation and the muscle memory and the anticipation of the story and all of that is bedtime but then next to bedtime you get dinner time tv time riding in the car time and you get more and more representations right and then eventually the representations get brought together into abstractions you get something like quality family time 
which generalizes across all of these representations, which generalize across all of these sensory motor systems. And so that's the notion of the hierarchical complexity stack in a single domain of basically like family systems. Yep. Another area I dug into and I was plunking around was I looked for intersections of the term hierarchical complexity and chunking. You know, chunking is a term that gets used in computational linguistics, used in neuroscience, et cetera, even in writing, right? There's a concept of chunking your text, et cetera. And sure enough, there was an intersection. It was something from Theo Dawson, actually. And it's interesting. That was probably my naive view of the essence of cognitive hierarchical complexity before I did this research, which is that as we get more life experience, we can load a lot more into a single term. You know, for instance, complexity itself. As someone who's been studying complexity science for 20 years, when someone says the word complexity to me, it has this huge history and depth and nuance and richness, and it doesn't mean more or less a synonym for complicated. You know, it has 20 years worth of learning packed into that one word. And in computational linguistics, we'd call that chunking. And so we would say that when I use the word complexity, it means something very different than when Farmer Jones down the road uses the word complexity, because I have chunked a whole lot more into that bag, essentially. Mm -hmm. No, that's exactly right. And the hierarchical complexity says it just goes one step further. The model of hierarchical complexity, the lectical levels, the skill scale, Piaget's stages. You know, like what they say is that, yeah, chunking exists and there's actually a, a definable kind of scale of chunking. So it's like chunking sensory motor systems is very different than chunking two or three different theories of biological evolution into a higher order theory of biological evolution, <laughs> right? Where you create new terms that can be used to basically capture the essence of a whole field, <laughs> uh, which is where you get in the kind of paradigmatic or principled levels of post-formal operational thinking. And so, yes, chunking is a ubiquitous property, and it even goes down into reflexes and nervous system action. So if you think about what the eye does vis-a-vis -vis the visual cortex, you're looking at a kind of signal noise distillation comparable to chunking. And this is what early psychologists like William James and Charles Sanders Peirce, where they saw a lot of things that we would call hierarchical complexity back in like 1870s and 90s, <laughs> just as a basic property of the what they used to call the nervous plasm, <laughs> which what we would now call neurons. The brain, they just didn't know what it was quite, right? And it was quite late in the day when they figured out what it was, right? Yeah, so Kurt Fisher argued very strongly, and I, there's a lot of evidence to suggest in a whole kind of sub-discourse around what was called neuroconstructivism, which was a neo-piagetian approach to neuroscience, essentially, which organized that neurological structures are, in fact, organized hierarchically uh, in terms of hierarchical complexity. So the, the property of hierarchical complexity, the very general as articulated by Michael Commons, is almost a, a general property of information across the biological spectrum. And this has been hypothesized as well. So Kurt Fisher, again, uh, his dissertation was done uh, looking at monkeys and pigeons, looking at the growth of hierarchical skill, which is to say hierarchical complexity, uh, in the behaviors of monkeys and, and pigeons. Um, and as I said, you can see it in the neuron. Uh, so there's something very deep about the process of the chunking, which is the many lower order processes being brought up and integrated by an emergent higher order process that 
that's like some kind of almost ontological thing <laughs> uh, rather than a psychological specific thing. Absolutely. I mean, because if we think about the science of complexity, it's essentially, it's all about the emergence often over multiple levels of complexity from simplicity. When I'm trying to explain what is complexity, the simplest example I have found is a human, right? At the bottom, it's just atoms and each atom's identical. Every hydrogen atom's exactly like every other hydrogen atom. Every electron's identical to every other electron, at least to the ability to tell at this point. But somehow they and the carbons get together and they produce fairly complicated molecules. And then you have those molecules getting to have chains, really long molecules. That gets us into biochemistry, which then somehow got turned into the metabolism inside of a cell, which maintains homeostasis so the cell could survive and then later reproduce probably. And then, you know, 500 million years ago, somehow the cells worked up some mojo so they could work together to be a multicellular animal. That was a new emergence. And then they started developing gradually organs and then systems of organs. And then you have entities. So you have the animals and they live in an ecosystem. So you have this emergence from, it's still all just atoms at the bottom, but up it comes. So this is a characteristic attribute of complex adaptive systems that if the circumstances are right, essentially have emergences from the bottom up. And sounds like cognitive hierarchical complexity falls into that same ontology is another example of the emergence of complexity from simplicity. Yeah. And now you've plugged the model of hierarchical complexity into a story of cosmological evolution in a similar way that, let's say, someone like Ken Wilber has done and Kurt Fisher did uh, and even Alfred North Whitehead would do, which is to say that there's a continuity of evolutionary process, specifically articulated by process philosophy or complexity science of the emergent higher order or hierarchical complexity. And so that there's a continuity between the human and universal cosmological evolutionary process, which is which is a quite fascinating proposition. And of course, what psychology should be doing, <laughs> right? It should be telling us that there are so-called universal laws of nature that are instantiated in our experience as humans, um, specifically our psychological experience. So yeah, that's one of the things that attracted me to the model actually was that it was a co it was coherent with the rest of what evolution was telling us about how things evolve. And if you look at developmental psychology, that's what it's looking at. It's looking at how does the individual human evolve? I understood as an instantiation of an organism that evolved <laughs> uh, out, of a, out of a universe that's evolving. Uh, and Piaget's big insight was to basically say, we cannot do epistemology or psychology or anything that is about you know the nature of the person or the human of the mind. After Darwin, we can't do that the way it was done before Darwin. We need, or, or Lamarck, Piaget was interested in Lamarck. That there's in fact uh, a need to, yeah, begin to weave the human into an evolutionary story that's actually larger than them. And so Piaget understood himself, yeah, in, in fact, researching biological process that had become epistemological. And that's a fascinating proposition that uh, out of these contingent and seemingly uh, random and temporally limited processes, you get knowledge, which is ostensibly universally applicable and necessary. So like mathematics emerged out of evolution, 
<laughs> like where was mathematics before the human brain? This is a kind of interesting question that Piaget would ask. And it is worth mentioning that I'd push, I think uniqueness goes all the way down. This brings us far afield into the, the universe story as it were. But uh, yes, the atoms are basically indistinguishable, but they are distinct in time and space. So they have unique uh, location and even indeterminable location, which is to say that there's a uniqueness even at the atomic or subatomic levels. And then there's uniqueness all the way up that stack, the full developmental stack of what Wilbur would call the, the complex compound individual, which contains within it all the prior evolutionary stages and then whatever stages of cognitive development have uh, been attained, personality development. It's worth mentioning in my full meta-psychological model, these questions of hierarchical complexity and development are about a third of what's important when considering the human mind. And so I just want to drop that note in here. We won't go there today, though. Yeah, we're not going to go there today, but there's also issues of emotion and personality and other things I wrap under the heading of insolment. Uh, and then there are things under consciousness, awareness, um, self-regulation, which I class under the concept of transcendence. So. And then that's paired with development, which is where what we're talking today. Uh, so yeah, so I like that you brought it broad and that you show that the notions of emergence in the complexity science are directly relevant to the question of hierarchical complexity. And that's what Kurt Fisher pioneered in the 90s, actually applying dynamical systems modeling techniques from the complexity sciences to modeling uh, human development. And so on the metaphor that the individual mind brain is like a complex ecosystem, that it would have kind of these organic um, processes of emergence and even regressions. And so there's a bunch of really interesting stuff that emerged from that. And that was kind of the, the core of the Neo-Piagetian synthesis was that the emergence of mathematical models from complexity science that actually showed us <laughs> stuff that Piaget had been trying to show us, but he just didn't have the computers and the mathematics. Now, interesting you mentioned the emergence of mathematics. There's a cognitive neuroscience that I really follow closely. In fact, I hope to have him on the show soon. I'm doing a series on the science of consciousness, and he's one of the leaders, Stanislas Dahane. He's a French cognitive neuroscientist. Yeah, I met, I met him. He's a wonderful, incredible uh, experimentalist and writer. Yeah. And, and he's got two books, which are, they seem mighty narrow, but they are unbelievably interesting. If you haven't read them, I forget their titles, but they're, one's essentially the cognitive neuroscience of reading, and the other is the cognitive neuroscience of arithmetic. And it does an amazing job to show that these two things, which we were not evolved to do directly, right? There was no evolution for reading, obviously, because paper didn't exist during most of our evolutionary history. And arithmetic, you can argue a little bit more that maybe we started needing it at some point. But he takes it all the way back to like the rough sense of numbers that non-human animals have and things of that sort. Really, really interesting for anyone interested in that theory. But let's not go there either. Let's go on to my next topic, which is something that just jumps out at me as I was saturating myself and reading about hierarchical complexity is what's the forcing function? What's the pruning rule? Why did nature have to go this way? And one thing that hopped out from my mind, from things I work on, is, damn, this looks a heck of a lot like an artifact that is a workaround for the remarkably small short-term memory that we have. You know, the famous seven plus or minus two short-term memory, Miller's short-term memory, 
turns out if you're not dealing with sound, because words are basically stored as sound, if it's images, it's actually four, three or four. So our working memory is tiny, tiny, small. And to actually get a gestalt from a series of things together in working memory, it means that the only way to be able to work on more and more difficult problems is to make those chunks bigger so that I have seven that I can work with simultaneously. That's got to be a driving function for this hierarchical complexity. And in pre-human animals, the number's not seven, it's three, four, two, things of that sort. So what do we know about the relationship between the gating function of working memory size and the emergence of hierarchical complexity? Yeah, that was, I think, probably the most common and may remain the most common hypothesis about why hierarchical complexity emerged as such a strong function. Now, there's also the, what we previously mentioned about the cosmological significance of these kinds of uh, process, which means we have to ask that question in general about evolution, but we won't do that now. Uh, but when it comes to the human mind, uh, yeah, definitely working memory. Pascal Lyon, I think was his name, had an entire theory of cognitive neo-Piagetian. He was part of the neo-Piagetian consensus in the 90s, and he had a theory of M power, which was basically that. It was There's only so much memory. And the units you hold in memory uh, become denser and deeper and more abstract and complex. Um, and that's what basically he thought is it was the main thing that we were detecting, even with like IQ tests and stuff, that our kind of instinct for intelligence was more or less that. So that, uh, that so there's a huge amount of truth in this as, as this is true. But there's the Piagetian insight, which it is it's actually the working memory bottleneck in combination with both the demands of the world, which is to say, if the world was not really complex, then we wouldn't matter that we had a working memory bottleneck. So there's, a, there's an implicit realism here, which is to say that uh, the world itself and the complexity of the environment we're in is one of the drivers, as is our need to understand, which is the epistemic motivation. So, Piaget made a big distinction between success and understanding. And so success is the accomplishment of something that needs to be accomplished. Um, understanding is knowing why it worked. And there's a threshold that's crossed in human development where children go from wanting to succeed to wanting to understand. And most animals don't cross that threshold, although it's arguable in specific cases or something within like enculturated monkeys and and things for the most part, most animals <laughs> are operating at the level of success. And there the world is mostly driving the adaptation of the nervous system to accommodate and survive. With a human, you find the world drives it to a certain level of complexity, and then there's an epistemic motivation, which can be fostered socially or not. Um, but it is there innately, uh, which also drives the information through the memory bottleneck. And again, the memory bottleneck alone is not going to do it. You need the complexity of the world. Uh, and specifically, what's weird is the abstraction of the world. That's what's so odd. And this is what's interesting about mathematics is why do our mathematical models look like the world at all? <laughs> like, why is there correspondence between them when there is? Uh, and so this notion that, yes, actually, there's uh, implicit realism, but it's a critical realism in the Bascarian sense within the Piagetian framework. He was an epistemologist first. So yeah, working memory as a kind of functional explanation, yes, but there's a deeper epistemological motivation and the universe itself being able to be disclosed, right? That we can ask of nature ever more complex questions tells us something about nature. Yep. 
And also, it's interesting that the universe is, at least as far as we know, lawful. If the patterns were random, truly random, then there would be no point in investing in the biological cost of being able to try to extract these abstract patterns because they'd be useless, right? Precisely. And so, and this is directly relevant to childhood and early childhood socialization environments, which is to say that, yeah, if, if there's not a lot of complexity in the environment, then the nervous system doesn't expect complexity. And if there's, and doesn't seek out, it just can do what it can do. And if there's not a lot of consistency, <laughs> uh, and this happens a lot in parenting styles, uh, then you just give up on trying to make sense of it. <laughs> If we try to process noise, you know, the signal you extract is just a statistical random attribute, not useful for anything. And by the way, just before we go on, just because I have to, right, I actually use that argument to come down on the side of realism versus idealism, that because of the fact that we have invested all this cost in machinery to process reality, reality must actually exist. Otherwise, we wouldn't have. So that's the Ruddian answer to the idealism versus realism philosophical question that goes back at least 2,500 years. But let's not argue that one today. Totally. No, we, we won't. But it, it is relevant because that's, that's really where Piaget was, was trying to come down. Then, of course, he also was a moral realist and uh, epistemological or, or constructivist in the domain of sensory motor objects. So this question of like, you know, how is it that um, – universal laws of logic, like the law of non-exclusion, uh, emerges in childhood at a certain point. Um, basically, whether or not the kid has been formally trained in logic, uh, but it's a property of the world, <laughs> and especially of social interaction and expectations around language use. So yeah, so there are these very interesting questions that emerge about uh, deeper than the issues of hierarchical complexity and its measurement. Uh, about how the mind is propelled to higher and higher levels of, of inquiry and deeper and deeper um, forms of knowledge. Um, and that's ultimately what the, what the field is about. What, what hierarchical complexity does, it allows us to kind of place the universe of potential knowledge on a spectrum of complexity. And that helps us diagnose the quality of the knowledge uh, and, and also helps us to teach and understand the emergence of knowledge. You know, when there are two competing theories and they're at the same level of complexity, that's different when there's two competing theories and they're at different levels of complexity, it just is. Um, and uh, similarly with different parts of yourself, you know, people don't just move from one stage of hierarchical complexity to the next on all domains, they move in very specific skill domains. So uh, you can have ideas about certain things you do that are much more complex about the ideas you have about other things you do. <laughs> this is very common. <laughs> yeah, I, I warn people who are, you know, real simple stage thinkers, like those color people, the spiral people, they say you're... Oh, spiral dynamics. I'll say, shit, I'm orange in this domain, blue in that domain, and aqua or some goddamn thing in another, right? I'm all over the place and everybody I know is all over the place. So this idea that we're in some color-coded, you know, lockstep sequence seems to me kind of simplistic. One last step, just a little deeper theory here before we will pop back up and kind of get down to more uh, applied examples or at least tangible examples. And this is from Theo, actually Theo Dawson, and it gets at something I think is interesting and important. I'd love to get your sense of it, which is, and I'm reading from her paper, Hierarchical complexity refers to the number of non-repeating recursions that coordinating actions must perform 
on a set of primary elements. Actions at the higher order of hierarchical complexity are defined in terms of the actions at the next lower level, A, and B, organize and transform the lower order actions, and C, produce organizations of lower order actions that are new and not arbitrary and cannot be accomplished by the lower orders themselves. So here we bring in the ideas of recursion and essentially top-down causality, which is quite interesting, two very important and slippery concepts. Hmm. Totally. Yeah, that's interesting. And you should, I assume you've had Theo on the show. If not, you should, because she may be directly quoting or adapting uh, some of the very formal language that Michael Commons used to clarify the model of hierarchical complexity, uh, almost as a mathematical psychologist. And so, yeah, so as we've been describing throughout this, you have a process where there is a task, like let's say tying the shoe again, right? And to get that done, you need to be able to control and organize a sequence of lower order tasks. And that higher order sequencing and organization will change the way the lower order task is operated than if you were just operating the lower order task without it being integrated into a higher order task. So like if you're just manipulating strings randomly to manipulate strings, that's very different than using the sensory motor skill of manipulating strings to specifically tie a knot. <laughs> and so that goes all the way up and all the way down the complexity ladder, which is to say, where uh, the complexity scale, that, yeah, the notion that there's a, there's a certain number of lower order elements that need to be integrated into the higher order element. And once that occurs, they're not the same old elements they were before they were integrated. Um, and there's many ways we can talk and like get into the examples of that. And the recursion is just about a formal scoring criteria. And that's important to get that there's the theoretical conversation we're having now. And then there's the looking at an actual linguistic performance or task that's been accomplished and assigning it in order of hierarchical complexity or electrical level. And if you're going to do that, then it's not about all of the random arbitrary horizontal complexity that they didn't need to put in. It's about the number of non-arbitrary recursions that need to be integrated into the higher order element to give it a specific score. Now we're getting kind of down into the weeds. Um, but yeah, that was a very formal mathematical definition, which means that you can apply that to computer programming and other areas where just information processing systems in general need to be understood in terms of their hierarchical complexity. So yeah, so that was a good to pull out. That's probably the, one of the most formal definitions. And I believe it's it's from the Commons paper, uh, which you probably cited in there, on the, you know, the, the definition of the stage itself uh, in Neo-Piagetian theory, which was a key uh, innovation by Commons there. Yeah, as a computer programmer guy, that's probably why he appealed to me. I knew exactly what she was saying, right? Then so it made it all crystal clear. Now, as I promised, we'll pop back up out of the deepest theory space. And now let's actually talk tangibly about this 15-level stages of hierarchical complexity that seems to have been Michael Common plus other people worked on it. Tell us a little bit first at a high level what it's about. And then if you could compare and contrast it briefly with some of the other thinkers in the space like Piaget, Kohlberg, maybe even Gardner's multiple intelligence. And then... We'll pause and discuss that, and then we'll kind of dive into the 15 levels. Oh, okay. Yeah, so 
Yeah, as I was saying, there's there's the model of hierarchical complexity, which is the model developed by Michael Commons. Um, at the same time he developed that model, there was this kind of broad neo-Piagetian consensus around that general set of levels. And so you have Fisher's skill levels, Michael Commons' orders of hierarchical complexity. You have Dawson's lectical levels. Uh, Robbie Case had a set of levels. Before that, you had Kohlberg's levels, Cheryl Armand's levels. Keegan famously has levels that are similar to the complexity scale, but not identical. Um, and so when you say 15, yes, there are 15 within the Commons model. You know, Fisher, but again, that's if you put a cap on it. <laughs> and if you don't go below the human sensory motor, right? So the question of how many levels, for example, I think is the wrong question to ask. And even the tour of the levels, where here's what it's like at this level and here's what it's like at the next level, that's useful only in part because, in fact, as we can discuss, as I'll get into, you know, despite what a lot of developmentalists say, developments always very domain specific. Um, so to speak about what it's like to be at a level is actually needs to be specified uh, away from these general stereotypical ways of characterizing it in, into more specific ways. Um, so yeah, Commons is, uh, is a very useful orientation. Um, I, I prefer to use Fisher's levels because it's a system of tiers and levels and it's very useful, but it echoes commons and they're almost identical. And Dawson's did the psychometric refinement to make the electrical levels, which I think are the, the measurement standard, uh, for hierarchical complexity measurement would be found with electrical levels. And again, they're basically isomorphic with the skill levels, which are isomorphic with commons as levels, but they're not identical. They're not the same but they're triangulating something. Again, a kind of realism here. So with, with Fisher, you have these three tiers, which are actions, representations, abstractions. And then above abstractions, you have principles. And those would correspond roughly to Commons's sensory motor, uh, which would be actions. And then operational and primary concrete stuff would be representations. And then he has formal, abstract, and systemic, which would be uh, in the abstract tiers of Fisher, and then his metasystemic brings us into Fisher's principled tier. Um, but what you have to understand is that actions, representations, abstractions, principles, um, you have levels within levels, you have sublevels, and you have the capacity to do what's called micro-developmental research, uh, where you don't look at behavior in terms of like, quote unquote, whole stage transition, but in terms of a micro-developmental process. Um, so again, there's a fractal-like property to the quality of hierarchical complexity, where the closer you look in at stills, at skills being constructed at a particular level, you can see that there's there's constructions and levels within within levels. Um, but the basic tour is something like you begin with sensory motor and you begin with single actions. You begin with the ability to, for example, you focus on your mom's face, right? And then you can eventually you have sensory motor mappings or mappings of actions where you coordinate the ability to look with the ability to reach to knock something off the table, right? And then you get sensory motor systems where you coordinate systems of sensory motor skills. So now you coordinate looking with reaching, with grasping, with bringing to the mouth and drinking, right? Like that's pretty complicated <laughs> based on the fact that 
the first thing I had to do was be able to just look and focus and isolate and get object permanence. So that's an example of skill development within the sensory motor tier. Yeah, let me jump in here just for a second, because I'm getting a, a re-education in all the, exactly that. I have a, my wife and I and our daughter, of course, have a six-month-old granddaughter. We've been seeing about once every four weeks. And of course, in this day and age, we get pictures and movies and FaceTimes on a more regular basis. And, you know, we've just been watching our granddaughter go through just these stages. First, you know, flopping her hands around at random and then moving in with, you know, one of them kind of purposefully and then the two of them together kind of purposefully, but kind of clumsily. And guess what? What she's doing now is grabbing a sippy cup and bringing it up and drinking it finally. Right. It's quite been amazing. A step by step by step. It's quite astounding. Totally. And it's amazing to see. And in fact, you you can see you can see it in infancy and toddlerhood and childhood. And that's why Piaget is thought to be like a child psychologist. Um, but it's actually because development and especially hierarchical integration takes place much, much more rapidly in the younger ages so that in a matter of weeks or days sometimes you'll see major hierarchical reorganizations that bring up a whole new skill capacity now later in life it can take years <laughs> because you've basically mastered so much that you would have to be confronted with some kind of really new and much more complex demand from the world to be growing more but the kid of course has mastered nothing <laughs> So uh, even just grabbing the cup is, a, is an incredible hierarchical integrative uh, accomplishment and requires emotional motivation and social reward and a whole bunch of other things to get that, that development going. So yeah, so the sensory motor world is this big sprawling world and it is important not to move through quickly, too quickly through the sensory motor. And this is one of the problems with screens and very early childhood development. Uh, very well researched to show that kids deprived of the ability to explore complex sensory motor environments are developmentally delayed, which is to say, once you start to build sensory motor skills, you need to build as many as you can across as many diverse sensory motor niches as you can be exposed to. And that's literally the bottom of your pyramid upon which you build your representations, right? When we worked with Theo and I, uh, when we were doing research in Springfield, Massachusetts, some, some urban schools and some kids, we were doing research on physics concepts about rubber duckies in bathtubs and what happens if there's a rubber ducky sitting there and you create a wave and you send a wave towards the rubber ducky. Will the rubber ducky go back or come towards you or just go up and down? And this was a physics question. And uh, it was at the level of about abstraction to get, but you could do a lot of work with it at the level of representations, but it required having actually had some experience in a bathtub with a floating object under reflective conditions of observation, which is to say to learn about the effects of your sensory motor behaviors on the world. And they hadn't had that opportunity. Uh, and that showed us what psychologists, of course, have known a long time, that uh, pre-verbal, exploratory, sensory motor stuff is important. And the continued engagement with those lower rungs of the skill stack, which is to say, continuing to use and explore and widen your sensory motor repertoire, even after you've moved up um, into representations and abstractions. But again, the young child, and this is the, he spoke, right? The first words, what are the first words, right? Like that's the emergence, again, usually of the semiotic function. If sometimes it emerges earlier with pointing and other things. 
but you get whole sprawling sets of sensory motor experience summarized in a single utterance or gesture. Uh, and that's the emergence. And this was to Piaget, the most miraculous thing, because it was really the thing that sets us apart from animals. And if it's not precisely there, then it's around there. And we can talk about that, but that's really beside the point in this conversation anyway. So you emerge into the representational tier, um, which is uh, operational. And then you move through the primary and the concrete if you're in the commons model. Uh, and then again, you, you're in a, it's kind of like your head pops up <laughs> and a whole world becomes available. The world of using linguistic signs to represent non-present realities, <laughs> right? So you can start to entertain counterfactuals. You can start to lie. Talk about Santa Claus. Yeah, precisely. And you can start to have these really complex narrative architectures to your experience. And that's what's so interesting. And so the similar process, you begin with one or two representations, mommy, doggy, bedtime, right? And then you get more and you can map them together. You know, mommy water means like, mom, I would like some water. <laughs> uh, and so you can map them together. Uh, and then you start to have very, eventually this uh, many mappings and kind of like a rich beginning of language. And then there's what we call representational systems where you get the ability of young kids to tell almost endless descriptive stories. So this is the age at which like they'll have baseball card sets and they will be able to memorize vast expanses. Uh, at least, I mean, nowadays, God, I just dated myself. I'm not even sure if kids have baseball cards anyway today, but, uh, the example of the kid who actually is incredibly can talk endlessly and tell things that are actually very complex stories, right? From one perspective, from a horizontal complexity perspective, the kid is now containing a tremendous amount of visual memory, uh, linguistic um, vocabulary, just numbers of words. And then all of that complexity of representations eventually gets summarized into abstractions. And this is where you get, you know, the Piagetian formal operational levels, what Commons calls abstract and formal. And here it's different. You know, most representations uh, refer to things that can be basically simply pointed to in the world. Remember, representations, quote unquote, chunk or contain sensory motor experience and process, right? So you know you're dealing with a representational language when what's being talked about is basically can be made present or just like almost taking a picture of or something like that. Uh, abstractions are not that way. <laughs> abstractions are by definition integrating many examples of representations into higher order things. And so, you know, you, you make bedtime out of the sensory motor array of getting ready for bed and brushing your teeth, et cetera, et cetera. You make quality family time out of thinking about the things that bedtime and dinner time and riding in the car time and TV time have in common or don't, right? And quality family time isn't something you can directly point at because what you're going to be pointing at is TV time or bedtime or car time, right? So it's a higher order, more abstract thing. Mm -hmm. And what's important to get is that many of the essential things that allow civilization to exist, exist at the level of abstraction. But abstraction is not guaranteed by the existence of the human nervous system. Abstraction requires education. And so you can get by just basically operating at the beginning of the abstract levels. And the argument would be that that would make democracy impossible. 
that in fact do hypothetical deductive reasoning to entertain plausible versus implausible, to understand how democratic process works to justify law and things of that nature, uh, just simply require uh, formal and systemic in Michael's as Michael Collins' language or abstract mappings, abstract systems. Yeah, let's pause here for a second, if we would, and let's try to bring it down to an actual example. Like, say, for instance, at the forager, hunter-gatherer level, and that's, you know, obviously there's some things they do that have great hierarchical complexity in, you know, making tools and organizing a mammoth hunt and what have you. But in terms of organizing their society, the governance layer, are we saying that at the sub-Dunbar number, we need less hierarchical complexity to make our governance work? Is that a reasonable statement? Yes. The more complex the principles that organize and allow the organization and coordination of the society, uh, the more hierarchical complexity is requisite of at least certain members of the society. This is something that Jürgen Habermas looked at specifically, uh, taking up from Kohlberg, who took up from Piaget, uh, basically arguing that, yeah, that's one way to think about the evolution of societies is to think about what's the requisite complexity necessary to pull off <laughs> the social coordination the society is attempting to pull off. Um, now, this shouldn't be confused with saying that the experience of the hunter-gatherer wasn't potentially as abstract and complex as our experience. It's just to say that it would not have been requisite to hold the society together that certain members achieved that. So like religious ritual, kinship ritual, uh, sensory motor capacities in hunting and sensory acuity. And there's a bunch of other things that, in fact, we would find ourselves probably greatly disadvantaged <laughs> when encountering that type of human nervous system, which is to say the hunter-gatherer or indigenous nervous system. Uh, and you could argue that because our society has become so complex, we've become too complex, that we've created individuals who have had to become uh, warped into highly complex specialists uh, to the detriment of their humanity <laughs> in order just to keep this thing going. And so, yeah, it's this kind of like our, it's kind of like an arms race between the task demands of the civilization and the capacities of the humans. And I think there was some tipping point where we started to create things that outstripped our capacity to uh, continue to maintain. Um, and so I talk about that in my book as the kind of like a, an educational crisis, you know, that in fact the task demands of just living as a citizen have outstripped what we can kind of like on average expect people to be able to accomplish. And yeah, so that's a very important dynamic to track. It's important not to fall into the trap of applying hierarchical complexity to cultural evolution unless you do it very well the way Habermas did. Because there's also a lot of talk among people who use color-coded developmental language. Looking back at you know, cultures before modern cultures, uh, even ancient cultures, uh, and then pre-modern and medieval and modern, and they, they turn the history of civilization and, evol and the evolution of cultures itself into a kind of, as if that was a story similar to the story of the individual developing human, that the indigenous people were like children. 
and that uh, you know the medieval people were like you know young uh, adolescents, and then we modern people are like you know adults or something. <laughs> and so I think that's that's, that's a that's a bad mis that's a misapplication. Now you can do hierarchical complexity analysis of historical documents, and this is what Habermas did with constitutions, basically in Europe, uh, to show that no, actually yes, this is a demonstrably more hierarchically complex way of conceiving the legitimacy of one's government and political process. Um, but uh, it's actually, I think, very difficult to know what, uh, in terms of like cognitive development specifically, and I would say in my model, especially in solvent and transcendent dimensions of the human psyche, what those were like in um, cultures uh, so old that they're intrinsically almost foreign to us and incomprehensible. So while your analogy works to the hunter-gatherer thing, I'm also hesitant actually to weigh in there. But I can say in at least recent modern history that again, Habermas and even Piaget did some work here uh, showing that, yeah, we've become more complex as a civilization and that has put greater educational demands uh, on the civilization and therefore greater complexity demands on each individual. And I think that's, I mean, that goes without saying and technology drives that too of course it's not just the demands of the legal process and being able to kind of like reflectively consent to be governed because you understand what it means to be governed uh, which by the way is like a very abstract thing i'm not sure a lot of people <laughs> realize but so there's that which is the demands of the state to greater complexity to be a citizen but then we've just had industrialization and a specifically digital technology uh, proliferation which has not legally demanded <laughs> that we become more complex, but has made us have to handle a great deal more complexity. And the internet, I think, in particular, has us up the, against the wall <laughs> in terms of this whole like chunking and working memory limitation and complexity thing. Too many signals. Too many signals. Too many signals, yeah. We're, we're going to go back on you know rising up the hierarchy, but before we do that, because you, you made a couple of comments that I thought would be a good time to insert something I actually had later, and that's the relationship between hierarchical complexity and kind of a somewhat bogus concept, but it has some merit, you know, general intelligence, Spearman's G kind of thing. They're not the same, but there seems to be some relation between the two, and certainly there's at least a pretty strong correlation when you give those two classes of tests. So maybe talk a little bit about, in your view, the relationship between general intelligence, Spearman's G, whatever you want to call it, and hierarchical complexity. Yeah, so it's a it's a good question. Now, this would be a great reason to have to have Theo on because I know she's she's recently been poking around and looking specifically at what the correlations are. And you're right that there are reasonable correlations. And as I mentioned, Pasquale Leone and other others within the neo-Piagetian consensus kind of did work trying to basically explain the findings of the IQ testing movement in terms of the explanatory concepts of neo-Piagetian frameworks. And I think that goes a long way. My concern basically, and I write about this a lot in my first book, is that ideally the model of hierarchical complexity allows for a much more complex way of understanding what we want, what we're trying to understand with something like general intelligence, right? Uh, what general intelligence does is similar to what uh, like the GDP does, right? Where it's a summary statistic uh, based on a pretty narrow range of indices. Uh, whereas hierarchical complexity 
uh, if you're understanding it and applying it right, you would never apply some person a hierarchical complexity level. <laughs> you would assign a particular task that they accomplished a hierarchical complexity level. <laughs> and that's a huge difference. So general intelligence is often uh, used and spoken about as if this, this entire person is basically smarter than that entire person. <laughs> and you're not saying like in this domain of the, you know, linguistic and spatio manipulative and mathematical intelligence, he's smarter than this person, but that guy's an auto mechanic and the other guy could never fix a car. So in the auto mechanic realm, that guy's actually smarter. <laughs> you just say, you just say, no, no, no. As a whole person, <laughs> this person's smarter than that person. And that's just bullshit. And it's bullshit. That's actually a holdover from uh, eugenics. <laughs> And a very misconceived way of understanding the nature of human psychology and the genetic transmission of intelligence. So that's why I'm, I'm just like kind of a little bit constitutionally opposed to that way of conceiving intelligence, not because it was associated with eugenics, but although that's a problem, <laughs> but because of how it oversimplifies radically and actually invites us into what Bhaskar would call a demi-reality. So because the IQ test does correlate with hierarchical complexity in particular domains, it means that there's a moment of truth in it. And so we're getting some signal from the IQ test, but then we over amplify that signal as if it's the entire signal the psyche is going to send us. And so we create a demi-reality where we live in a world that you can just simply categorize people <laughs> according to one number uh, that represents their intelligence. Um, and that became a really... Uh, popular way of doing psychology and remains a popular way of doing psychology. And it's anathema to a much more complex neo-Piagetian approach, which also studies the development of intelligence. <laughs> That's the thing. Like this is about one's ability to succeed in operating upon the world and to understand uh, the nature of the world. But the model of hierarchical complexity allows us to say things like, yes, in the domain of physics, uh, this guy's incredibly doing like paradigmatic reasoning. Uh, but in the domain of small engine repair, <laughs> he is doing sensory motor work <laughs> where his mechanic is doing uh, abstract work. And that's just a, a tr something that's true. And this ties into my notions of teacherly authority and the dynamic and contextual and distributed nature of teacherly authority, as opposed to the centralized and bureaucratically standardized processes of teacherly authority and expertise. And so this is, um, yeah, very important to get. So I think general intelligence uh, is a demi-reality, which contains uh, enough true signal to not be useless, um, but not enough richness of signal to be something you'd want to use to understand yourself and other people <laughs> or to organize educational organizations or things of that nature. So. Yeah, interesting. Well, that'd be another one to plug into it on another day. That's interesting. You mentioned that you strongly recommend against, you know, saying a person is level nine or whatever. One guy's I've had on our show three times, Hansi Freinecht, who's a sociologist and political philosopher, has written some books for what he calls political metamodernism. Throughout those books, he basically constantly is using the commons 15-level model and saying, this percentage of people are this, this percentage of people are that. We've got to work around the fact that you know only 1% of people reach level 12 and 0.6% reach level 13. Is that just entirely bogus? Or can you say in some sense that there's something to that? 
in one sense, it's bogus. <laughs> in one sense, it is bogus because those are not numbers that are reliably empirically generated. There just hasn't been enough hierarchical complexity research to be able to speculate about large populations that way. Uh, Theo Dawson has the largest database of existing hierarchical complexity data, and she does have some numbers that make some recommendations to generalize about, okay, you know, what percentage of people have been shown to be able to reach this level? So that's a generalization across the population about kind of like highest demonstrated skill capacity. But it's not a claim about that those people are at that level. Um, and so to say things like that, I think, is, is quite vexed. Um, but you can say things like, for example, there's a job in an organization which requires you to be able to manipulate abstractions in complex multivariate ways, right? That's like a, a requisite task demand, which specifies the lowest order complexity that someone could actually do that job at, right? So you can start talking about kind of like, what are the generally emergent task demands of society and how well are people adapting to those? So an approach that Keegan took in, in over our heads, which basically says, well, regardless of where people are at, this is what they're being asked to do. <laughs> um, and look how complex or not that is. Uh, and so think about what people are being asked to do uh, when they read the news. I would argue that they're being asked to continue to return to that newspaper. <laughs> uh, they should be being asked to engage in an extremely complex uh, and reflective way with the world uh, mediated by a reliable reporter, but instead they're giving a much simpler task. So I think you can make generalizations about hierarchical complexity, how it's relevant. Uh, and if you have enough measurement instances of a single person, you can sometimes say, hey, we've never seen him perform above this level <laughs> in any domain we've ever tested him in, right? So you can start to talk about something like um, consistency of performance within a developmental range, right? The zone of proximal development. But yeah, I'm very hesitant of people who want to classify whole populations or whole persons as being at a level. Yeah, I've complained about that with Hansi Freinach. I think it's um, it's a resuscitation of the kinds of developments you saw with the IQ test in particular, because it becomes a very powerful social sorting mechanism and a kind of bludgeon, which is the opposite of the way that it should be used for social purposes. So yeah, my, my hope is that nothing comes of the wedding between hierarchical complexity and uh, political activism quite frankly, because it's, yeah, in uh, even putting aside issues of measurement, right? And that's, if you're going to have a political movement built around identifying reasoning along the complexity scale, then you need to be able to actually really reliably and validly make those assessments. So there's a whole issue of measurement, um, but then there's a deeper issue of just how does one, you know, use politically psychological constructs responsibly. So yeah, so and, and that's but these are these are concerns. Nothing right now is <laughs> bad is happening <laughs> in terms of the model of hierarchical complexity being misused the way IQ tests were used. Um, but you do have these kinds of generalizations, which I think is just basically stereotypical uh, reasoning. So yeah, so that's my that's my sense there. That's great. I'm sure a fair number of our people in our audience who've read Hanzi and they say he's been on three times and 
people are interested in what he has to say. So I'd love to hear your perspective on it as well. Let's go back to the list, essentially, and let's skip over some of the lower ones and maybe start off with something equivalent of commons level six and just give people a sense. Try to make them as tangible as possible with an example of what might you know, be at that level and the next level and levels above that. And try to do it fairly quickly. And maybe if you could have one domain where you give an example for each level, that could be helpful. Right. So I'll go starting with the primary through the concrete to the abstract, to the formal, the systemic to the metasystemic, which would be in Fisher, we'd be moving from representations to abstractions to principles. And I did some of this already, but you can Imagine in domain like uh, moral development, um, where the early levels are egocentric uh, and essentially punishment reward oriented and based on obviously demonstrated representation, like what's, what's happening, right? So fairness is a big deal on the playground, but fairness on the playground has to do with like, okay, looking in each kid's hands and seeing if there's the same amount of M&Ms in each kid's hand, right? And if one kid got a lot more M&Ms than another kid, then that's just simply not fair. Or simple at a slightly higher level, let's say if we're on a playground where kids are in middle school, then you're up in abstraction. And then they're creating abstract rules where fairness has to do with, is the rule fair means does the rule promote this abstract idea about what the game's supposed to be, right? Which is that it doesn't make it so that some kids are basically completely disadvantaged and always lose, which would make it not a game, but something else. And so you move from just a very concrete, kind of like simply definable notion of fairness to an abstract notion of fairness, where there's a set of rules that we've agreed to and the violations of them uh, aren't violations of like physical reality. Uh, they're violations of a social reality that we are all aware that we've constructed in making the rules, right? And then you can move to a principled definition of fairness, which is where, and this brings us up into through the systematic into the metasystematic, which is like John Rawls's work, right? Justice as fairness, where you actually have a multi-systemic integration of several different fields of ethics <laughs> into a single theory of justice built around a notion of fairness, which actually transcends and includes those prior two notions. Um, it does have to do at the end of the day with who's holding what food in what hand, but it comes all the way up through the social agreements of the society to the principled constitution that set the parameters by which the lower order uh, norms are are played out. Um, so in the domain of moral judgment, you move that route from a kind of like concrete representational, situationally specific notion to a more kind of like we're conforming to a set of agreed upon rules to a abstract principled stance from which you can norm the norms of the convention and uh, make rules about the making of rules. <laughs> So that's how, kind of how the, the moral development stack, and that would be, you know, you could look to, to Kohlberg uh, for that kind of notion. And, and that rests on top of, again, the deeper architecture of this process of hierarchical integration. And that's kind of how one way to think about the model of hierarchical complexity is that you can take it, uh, as we did at Lectica, in, into many different domains and then rationally reconstruct a learning sequence 
across the complexity orders. And so that's what I just did. I rationally reconstructed a very rough <laughs> learning sequence about the nature of fairness across multiple complexity levels. And so with, this, with a universal ruler, which is to say a universal measure of hierarchical complexity, you can then make domain-specific learning sequences. Uh, and so you can find a bunch of examples of those, uh, like in Theo's work and uh, in other developmentalists who've, who've published them. So hopefully that was useful, kind of what you were looking for. Yeah, that's exactly what I was looking for, something that gave people a sense of what these higher levels felt like and looked like. Almost tempted to go down a sidebar, but I don't think we have the time. I was going to say, wait about the difference between deontological and consequentialist ethics here, but that, we'll do that another day. Well, that, I can, we could talk about Kohlberg answered that for you. Exactly. Anyway, now let's move you know, further down to the tangible. You, know, you were involved with founding of Lectical, and you guys developed systems for evaluating tasks and then measuring you know, people's ability on specific kinds of tasks and saying that for a task of this sort, this person can handle this level, but not that level. Talk a little bit about what actually goes into that. How's that pie baked? to be able to do that and, and, again, as tangible and as exampleful as possible. Yeah, so, again, it's like um, she definitely have Theo on as a, as a follow-up to this because she has her finger right on the pulse of where the state of the uh, assessment development is at Lectica. Um, you know, I can tell you about the, the principles behind the way the Lectical assessment uh, came into being. Um, you know, you had – that history of psychology I mentioned from Piaget through Kohlberg to Fisher to the Neo-Piagetian consensus. And all along you had practices uh, for determining which level or stage a performance was at. Um, and Piaget built his, Kohlberg had his scoring system, Fisher had his uh, skill analysis, uh, Commons had his model of power complexity, Theo had the electrical assessment system. And so what all of these are, are ways of basically looking at open-ended human performance, usually linguistic performance, like what I'm doing now, just speaking, and looking through the surface level of what's said, the content for the deeper hierarchical structure uh, that's being expressed by being able to do that, right? So how hard is it in terms of non-arbitrary recursions and hierarchical integrations? How many of those? <laughs> am I doing right now by speaking this abstractly and complexly? The answer is a lot, which is why you can only do it for so long and it takes a lot of blood sugar. <laughs> so what Lexica, what Theo did and her kind of stroke of genius really was to take uh, standard psychometric tools that had been developed, specifically the Roche model, which is a psychometric technique for scaling, and apply them to the model of hierarchical complexity to basically bring those scoring procedures, which had just been developed for research purposes by psychologists, to bring those into a formal enough form to actually make a standardized assessment of cognitive development. Not a good enough for research assessment of cognitive development, which is what all they had all been prior and which basically all of them remain but a good enough for prime time to compete against the SAT standardized assessment of cognitive development. And that's what Theo did. And that's why I joined her in helping her create Lectica. And so there what it is, is a standardization of the human rating process, which is to say we really refined the hell Theo did out of the model of hierarchical complexity and the skill scale and et cetera. And then a deepening of the technologies that surrounded the administration of the assessment. So. We built standardized developmental assessments that could be administered through the internet. 
And now Theo has worked out an automated scoring system so that we can actually uh, use uh, machine intelligence tools to automate at least certain parts of the electrical analysis. So the goal there was basically to replace the standardized tests, the multiple choice uh, curriculum constraining, no child left behind, race to the bottom standardized tests, to replace those with developmental assessments. Um, This was the goal. And those look like richly developed assessments that were diagnostically useful in the classroom. So that's the, the main thing to get is that a standardized test says you pass or fail. Electrical assessment says, here's what you understand, and here would be the next best thing for you to learn. It's a diagnostic, and it's, it can be diagnostic because it's based on, a, on an empirically grounded rational reconstruction of a specific learning sequence. Um, so we would say to the kid, hey, you understand fairness in terms of those M&Ms in the hand, right? And that's wonderful. And here's a couple of other things like at that level that you probably also understand. Uh, or if you don't, they'll be easy to get. But what you don't get <laughs> is this thing right at the edge of your understanding, you know, that there's something more general, that the same idea applies to M&Ms as would apply to Doritos, as would apply to the time your brother gets to play video games versus you, right? So the idea that if we know how the learning sequence works, then we can actually figure out where you are in the learning sequence and give to you like basically precisely the next thing that would be best for you to learn to continue to grow in your hierarchical complexity. So that's the nature of the, the electrical assessment. And we developed them for the K-12 system uh, and encountered tremendous complexity uh, with the kind of like standardized testing industrial complex, if I can call it that. But we've also developed them for adults, uh, specifically leadership, management, uh, business, context, and government, where we've found a real need on the part of a whole bunch of different sectors to find a way to determine just how just how complex they are in terms of their thinking and, and skills. And then even more importantly, how to diagnose areas for, for growth, how to understand skill development in areas like uh, leadership decision-making uh, and ethics and things like that. Zach, next, let's, I'd love to drill into this because my business career, I spent a tremendous amount of my time thinking about the people side of business and specifically identifying leaders, identifying potential leaders, developing leaders, et cetera. So I'd love to dig in a little bit to the work you guys did at Lectica on applying this concept of measuring hierarchical complexity in the business world, in the task of leadership identification and development. I'd just be fascinated with that. I'm sure I have a million questions. Yeah, I mean, and this is where I I began the work, actually. It was, I met Theo when I was an undergraduate at Hampshire, and she had been hired by the National Leadership uh, University, which was basically an intelligence agency organization, so like NSA, CIA people, to do leadership development work, specifically on identifying and growing uh, leaders in the intelligence community. So the, f- the first stuff I cut my teeth on as a complexity analyst uh, was on these leadership development interviews, hundreds of them. And what's really interesting about it is that I mean, obviously, the idea that hierarchical complexity is this dimension of human development, and it goes from the crib to Einstein, and so you would want your leaders to be obviously very complex. And it's also obvious, as we mentioned, that the world itself specifically demands 
the demands made on people in leadership positions in a place like the NSA, for example, or a major organization or a major urban school district uh, will be just qualitatively more complex than they would have been probably even five years ago or 10 years ago. So there's a complexity gap uh, between the task demands of most leadership roles and the capacities of the leaders. And so we tried to set in and differentiate that complexity gap across a couple of domains. Like where is it the complexity? Is it that they don't, that they don't understand operationally the complexity of the stuff they're doing, or is it the social complexity, right? The perspective taking complexity. And that's where we ended up focusing. We found a lot of differential between people's ability to handle the kind of like, let's say engineering, problem solving side of their jobs, and that the struggles emerged in the domains of perspective taking, perspective seeking, uh, and perspective integration. So we built a whole series of learning sequences around perspective taking in the domain of leadership. And Clint Foos, who was a close student of Ken Wilber, did his dissertation on that work. Um, and uh, Theo has continued to advance it. And so there what you have is a set of really well-specified learning sequences about just how leaders transform in their understanding, moving from being able to take just one perspective or not even take any perspectives. <laughs> That's frankly most of them on day one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is what we found. And the, what's interesting, and this again speaks against the idea of classifying a whole person at a level, it's precisely the people who have the most highly developed areas of expertise where they've become very abstract and complex in one specific area. It's precisely those people who usually have a, a, a complexity deficit in other areas and are unable to see it <laughs> because they're so complex in, in one area, they sometimes try to apply those skills to another area and think they're, it's working when they don't even realize that they're in a separate domain. I'm gonna give you just a quick sidebar example there. For many years I worked providing technology into the investment industry. And one of the truisms of the investment industry that the world's worst investors are medical doctors because they're great in their domain, way above average in skill. They think they can apply those same set of pattern matching algorithms to the investment world. And it turns out for some interesting reasons, they don't apply, but they would never admit it. So you know, the only ones possibly worst are dentists of the same cognitive model, but are about 10 IQ points, less intelligent. There's a found knowledge out in the field that would collaborate your findings. Yeah, well, there's another issue. And again, this is the what we sometimes ended up calling the expertise fallacy. Doctors in particular are not great thinkers, but this has to do with how medical schools work and how insurance agencies constrain uh, doctor judgment patterns. So yeah, so anyway, we looked at perspective taking, perspective seeking, perspective integration, and these are distinct, and you can be good at one without being good at others, but you can't be good at perspective integrating without being good at the other two. So there were many leaders who took perspectives so they could like imagine what it would be like for this person to react to their decision, but they never actually in any of their responses suggested seeking out the perspectives of their employees. <laughs> Uh, so we started to do a lot of work around perspective seeking and the complexity of perspective seeking strategies, which is very interesting subdomain of leadership development. We also did work on leadership vision. Uh, and so that's another area. Um, just what is the complexity of how the leader understands their self as a leader and what that job is like and what the organization, mission, vision, et cetera. So, but we found that not nearly as predictive of 
success. And we did some work um, with a large municipality uh, where there were 360s involved to look at the correlations between complexity growth and improvement um, from the perspective of the 360. And the perspective seeking, perspective taking, perspective integration, and in a sense, complexity in general were predictive of improvement on the on the 360 scores. So yeah, there's there's something to be said about understanding leadership from the perspective of this complexity deficit, that the task demands of the world are greater, that we're in over our heads, as Keegan said. That's absolutely true. But then you need to differentiate and specify just where is those complexity deficits occurring. And so that's the work we were able to do. And then with the assessments, you're able to you know, invite someone into an open-ended essay that they fill out and write. Um, and they receive you know, a quite complex uh, diagnostic report, uh, which is full of educational, basically, supports and offerings. So the idea is not that you do leadership assessment for hiring and firing. Um, you do leadership assessment for the sake of promoting leadership development. So that was always our stance, and it remains the case that the, the main value proposition of the electrical assessment is the diagnostic function. Now, again, if you can specify the complexity of the role and the task demand of the position, then you can set a minimum threshold of complexity that needs to be identified for even being considered being hired. So you can do the kind of go, no-go, simple sorting mechanism thing with electrical assessments. And we have some clients who do that. And But uh, as I mentioned, because we've reconstructed these learning sequences around perspective taking and ethics and other various domains where there could be complexity deficits, um, you can actually use these things very diagnostically. And of course, if you can do one, you can do a team and you can look at how teams you know, work in terms of complexity differentials of team members. And so there's a whole bunch of doors that open in leadership development work when you've got a suite of measures that are both diagnostic and accurate and are not Myers-Briggs or IQ tests, <laughs> right? These are much more well tied into the ecologically valid aspects of the job, which is to say, no, um, it, when you read a response to one of our assessments about how this person would make a decision on the job, tells you a tremendous amount about them, not whether they're introverted feeling or whatever, you know what I mean? And so I think it's important to uh, understand too that metrics and psychometrics in general permeate leadership development. And a lot of professional development work is characterized by a consultant bringing in a measurement instrument, usually of psychological properties, uh, but sometimes of network dynamics and communication dynamics in a company. So there's a power dynamic there, which needs to be tracked. Um, and I write about this a lot uh, in my books because I write about measurement and the politics of quantitative objectivity. And so same thing happens in medical diagnostics. So it's very important that the, the practice uh, in which the measure is embedded is uh, appropriate. Because you can use measures as just a bludgeon. You can, you know, and this is how medical measures are used often and how leadership measures are used where it's, a, it's like an ostensibly third-party expert that now gets me, the expert who's in front of you, to, you know, basically do my regimen, <laughs> you know? And this happened with IQ tests and happens with SAT tests and other things where the ability to present a quantitatively objective index uh, begins to basically really distort social practice. 
And so this is just to say that, yeah, we have these diagnostics, but we also require people to be trained in their use um, so that people just can't go out there and use <laughs> electrical assessments. There's a, a certification process, um, which is an educational process, which gets into some of what we talked about here, but also more specifics around appropriate use and educational affordances of the assessments and things of that nature. So, so that's a little bit of how it, it looks. And again, my sense is, yeah, having Theo on for a follow-up would be brilliant because there's a way in which if people have heard all this, then she can just jump right in and, and talk about ongoing research and the power of some of the assessments. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'll just react to that a little bit. Kind of interesting that you found the perspective taking was actually the limiting factor, or at least the strongest signal. And I'm going to toss out a hypothesis, having you know, kind of grown up in the business world from 1975 to 2000, more or less. It was a period when theories of management were undergoing very rapid change. In 1975, most companies were fairly rigidly hierarchical with a small fan out. You know, typical rule of thumb was any manager shouldn't have more than five to seven direct reports. And if you do the math at an organization of any size, that'll tell you you have to have N, you know, first level managers, second level, third level, fourth level, the famous General Motors, U.S. Army, Catholic Church model. Later, as we started moving into the late 80s and the 90s in particular, the theory came around that you should flatten the organization, get rid of many levels of managers, which actually makes sense in one level because it takes longer for information to move up the chain to where a decision could be made and too many decisions had to go up too many levels before they could get made. In some companies, they start having managers with having as many as 20 direct reports. And if you think about it from a perspective-taking measure, if you have to think about five people that work for you and their perspectives on things as they relate to the whole, because that's, you know, each of those five people have some specialty which relates to the whole that you're responsible for, that's much less difficult than taking 20 perspectives that relate to the whole. So I wonder if that very rapid change in management structures essentially is what put the stress on perspective-taking. Yeah, that's interesting. We never really, I think there's a lot of things that contributed to it. And what we also found was that it was, it wasn't that they couldn't do it. Uh, sometimes they couldn't, right? Because there's, as you said, there's the number of reports. There's actually the complexity of the perspectives of their reports. <laughs> uh, and so, the, yeah, sometimes they're just, oh, there's too many and they can't do it even if they try. But we often found that it was salience, which was that it just didn't seem relevant to take the perspective. As soon as they were prompted, to take the perspective, they could begin to do it, but just wasn't a part of their habitual operating. Uh, and so it does say something about the environments that people are socialized in. Um, and specifically the, I think two things, one would be non-democratic nature of work environments. And the other would be zero sum competition as characterizing work environments. Uh, both of those things make it so it, it's kind of like, I don't really need to take your perspective, and it might, I might not even want to, um, unless it's strategic, in which case I wouldn't really seek it because then you'd know I was looking for your perspective. So I think there's a bunch of things that in most kind of corporate environments would disincentivize and lower the salience of some of the most important forms of perspective taking and seeking. But then there are other, yeah, completely structural constraints where it's just this guy just has too many reports and the reports that are reporting to him are too complex. Like, so for example, imagine you have a six-person team, but they're all PhDs in different fields <laughs> <laughs> and you're trying to integrate 
that into a synthesis, right? That's different from a team of six, all of whom are making espressos. It's funny you mentioned that. I actually ran in a business research lab at one point. We had about, by the peak, we had about 30 PhDs. And for exactly that reason, I very much narrowed the management fan out so that the manager only had four reports. Because I concluded there's no effing way that a regular business manager, and then we did decide that we needed business managers rather than other PhDs, ain't no way they could even have a hope of being able to process more than four. And that's, that was our team's size. One manager, four researchers. That's kind of interesting. And the other thing I was just thinking about as you were relating this, the idea that when you're in, unfortunately in a bad faith game theoretic situation like a lot of big corporations, you know, perspective taking has a very strange valence and is, you know, less valid in some sense. If you can assume the actors at both ends of the perspective taking are operating strategically and game theoretically rather than in good faith. So one of the things I always pushed in my own companies, first rule of the company, absolute intellectual honesty at all times. And hard to get, but if you build it in from day one, you can approximate it. And that is so different than the normal, you know, games people play in corporate America. And it allowed us, our small companies, to outcompete some big boys big time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's important to get that, like, the Darth Vader move is always possible, which is the highly abstract and complex person who does a lot of perspective taking, but for the wrong reasons and for strategic advantage. Oh, yeah. High-function sociopath. Nothing quite like him. Yeah, and there's a lot of misunderstanding in, in developmentalism in general that the higher levels are always better, but this is not true. Yeah, we had a good example of that. It was good that our wannabe dictator was not very effective, right? <laughs> A good example. Anyway, Zach, this has been incredible, just as I hoped it would be. You have taken us on a long journey that makes this idea that a lot of people talk about. I think, you know, Hanzi had a lot to do with popularizing hierarchical complexity. And you've taken it from a vague generality and put a lot of specificity on it and given us a lot to think about. So I want to really thank you for coming. It was just like the last three times, a wonderful episode. It was great. Happy. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.